We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 376 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, August 15th, 2022. A new work week is upon us, although for this podcast, the work week already had begun. A special Commander's postgame show installment of the podcast came out on Sunday morning. Hopefully you caught that. Uh, Thank you for all of the good feedback to that. And on this installment of the podcast, I have a lot more on the Commander's preseason opening at 23-21 loss to the Carolina Panthers at FedEx Field on Saturday afternoon for you. In fact, I have a special guest for you. Uh, Next segment, Commander's insider Pete Haley of NBC Sports Washington. Uh, Pete knows his stuff, puts in a lot of work covering the team, and so we're going to get into a lot with the team. Uh, We will go in-depth on Carson Wentz. Uh, We will get into Sam Howell, including what the commanders truly think that they have in Howell. Uh, We will examine whether Antonio Gibson's spot as the team's number one running back now is on the line uh, off his bad performance against the Panthers and off Brian Robinson Jr.'s good performance against the Panthers. Uh, You will hear a Pete Haley theory for why Ron Rivera stunningly fired defensive line coach Sam Mills III last week. You will hear Pete's take on the Jason Wright-Scott Abraham situation and much more. Pete Haley, Talking Commanders, next segment. Uh, Also on the show, I have a lot for you on the Nationals and Orioles. Uh, Wild last few days for the Nats. Uh, They welcome back Juan Soto and Josh Bell in losing two or three games to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park over the weekend. Uh, This as we got new intel on the circumstances of the Nats trading Juan Soto. Uh, The Nats are calling up the top prospect who they got from the Padres in the trade, C.J. Abrams. Uh, The Nats on Saturday night got a terrific performance at AAA Rochester from their top pitching prospect, Cade Cavalli, who is perhaps soon to be promoted to the major league level. We shall see. 
And the Nats in their series against the Padres had a lot of things go wrong, but also had more production from their out-of-nowhere offensive force these days, Joey Manessis. Yes, the Joey Manessis craze continued. Manessis mania continued. Uh, like I said, wild last few days for the Nats. I'll get into everything coming up. Uh, and I have a proper Orioles segment for you. Disappointing weekend for the O's. They lost two or three games at the Tampa Bay Rays in a key series in the American League wildcard race, including nearly having a perfect game thrown against them on Sunday afternoon. But also for the O's over the weekend was yet another good start from the ex-Nat, Austin Voth, who on Friday night flirted with a no-hitter and the O's over the weekend, called up one of their top pitching prospects, indeed one of the top pitching prospects in baseball, lefty D.L. Hall. Uh, now, he struggled on Saturday at the Rays. Uh, he got optioned back to AAA Norfolk, but not because he struggled, uh, because the O's are going to be using him as a reliever at the Major League level in their push for one of the three American League wildcard spots. Uh, very crafty what the O's are doing with D.L. Hall. Much more on the O's later in the show. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Uh, I have received a lot of tweets in response to something that I tweeted uh, on Saturday afternoon. A friendly reminder that the commanders turned the number 11 pick in the 2022 NFL Draft and a 2022 sixth round pick into four promising rookies. Uh, those rookies being receiver Jahan Dodson, running back Brian Robinson Jr., quarterback Sam Howell, and tight end Cole Turner. And while certainly nothing is set in stone, uh, what the commanders did in the 2022 draft in turning a first round pick and a sixth round pick into those four players could look quite nice as time goes on. Uh, tweet from Nat Love. The commanders won't get credit for their savviness because it doesn't fit the false narrative that the front office is inept, but I peeped the vision some time ago. All four of them guys have a chance to make an impact in both the near and intermediate future recouped all the Wentz picks too. Uh, thank you for that, Nat Love. By the way, I love that verb, peep. <laughs> uh, when I did the official Redskins postgame show on radio, I had a caller who would call in regularly. Slope. My man Slope. And he used to always say, yo, Al, peep this. And then he'd launch into his take on whatever happened with the Skins that day. I love that. Shout out to Slope. Uh, tweet from Mike. Will Howell become a bona fide starter in the NFL? Who knows? But he didn't look like a fifth rounder to me. A tweet from P.D. Stevens. I really wanted Burks at 16, but Dotson, very early on, yes, is looking like the right pick. I hope that continues because this could be a great draft class. Uh, yes, Traylon Burks, the receiver out of Arkansas. He was taken by the Tennessee Titans with the number 18 pick. In the 2022 draft, uh, the Commanders took Jahan Dodson with the number 16 pick in the 2022 draft. And hey, maybe Traylon Burks ends up being a great NFL receiver. But know this about Burks. He had a conditioning problem at the Titans mandatory minicamp. Uh, that is always a frightening phrase to hear regarding a rookie conditioning problem. Uh, now, Burks also has asthma but the way that the situation was reported was that conditioning uh, was an issue, not just the asthma. Uh, email from Stanley Evans on the number one commander star from their preseason opening loss to the Panthers at FedEx Field this past Saturday afternoon. 
Sam Howell, uh, right, Stanley? Pretty ironic that we got a quarterback with the last name Howell, and we all wanted the new name to be the Red Wolves. Obviously, this is only one preseason game, but imagine if Howell is the next best thing in the city. The crowd will be yelling, Howell. Uh, (laughs) Excellent point, Stanley. Now, imagine if Sam Howell at some point throws a touchdown pass to J.D. McKissick, who went to Arkansas State, for which the name of sports teams is the Red Wolves. You see, the Red Wolves movement can live on, even though the name of the team is Commanders. Uh, Well, I know that plenty of people were disappointed in the new name of the team being Commanders and not Red Wolves. So hopefully those of you who were disappointed are doing okay. Uh, Hopefully you are surviving. And hopefully none of you have suffered harm due to the negligence of someone else. Uh, But if you have, always know that the law firm of Paulson and Nace is there for you. If you have a case contact Paulson and Nace. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611 and make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions, and Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars For the sick and injured, I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. You're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202 902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace Take care of your family. So we this past Saturday afternoon had the Commanders 23-21 preseason opening loss to the Carolina Panthers at FedEx Field. We this coming Saturday afternoon will have the Commanders next preseason game at the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, That's this Saturday afternoon at four. Uh, This week technically is the final week of 2022 Commander's Training Camp. Uh, This Thursday, August 18th, is the last day of Commander's Camp. And joining us now to talk Commander's is Commander's Insider Pete Haley of NBC Sports Washington. Uh, You hear him on the Washington Football Talk podcast with J.P. Finley and Mitch Tischler. You can follow Pete on Twitter at PeteHaleyNBCS. Pete, it's good to have you back on the show. How are you? It is great to be back. And yeah, I mean, it feels like the season is still a bit far away and then thinking of December football and all that. But when you zoom out, it was one of the 20 guaranteed games we get for this football team. We're already 5% through this and uh, let's make sure we cherish each one of them. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> that is one way of looking at things. Now, with the Commanders playing at Kansas City this Saturday, I have to ask you something. Given that you are the man who came up with the alliterative nickname that was so bad it's good, Tampa Taylor, uh, for Taylor Heineke when he plays well, Kansas City Carson. <laughs> if Carson Wentz plays well this Saturday, will you pimp that nickname Kansas City Carson. Um, so I like where your head's at, um, and I like that you continue to pump me up about Tanner Taylor. <laughs> You're probably the only one on this entire planet who does in a positive manner. But I think Taylor's performance against the Bucks was a little more high stakes than whatever Carson does in KC for a quarter and a half. Regardless, it's interesting. And Kansas City Carson, Kansas City Sam, there's there's potential for both of those quarterbacks to make a name for themselves. So I'll, I'll let you know. I'll, I'll come back and uh, tell you if I feel good about those. All right. I appreciate that. Well, nobody is going to be calling Antonio Gibson Carolina Antonio uh, anytime soon. It was interesting on Saturday afternoon. Ron Rivera, during his postgame press conference, seemed to have a much bigger problem with Gibson's running style than Ron did with Gibson's latest fumble. Ron was really upfront about how he wants Gibson to run. What'd you make of that? And where do you think that the commanders are headed at running back, given how good Brian Robinson Jr. looked against the Panthers? Yeah, that was that felt like a different tack from Ron against Antonio in the past. It's been very supportive. This this felt like the next step in the on the way to like you're losing your job. Not that I think Antonio's job is lost, but I do think Ron escalated the pressure and voiced it pretty clearly what Antonio needs to do. And what I was frustrated about is that Antonio told us during training camp, that's how he knows he needs to run. He needs to be aggressive and direct and not shuffle. And then he comes out on a second carry, does that and suffers in a, in the turnover department. So um, I think Antonio is well aware but it's about him taking that awareness and then applying it in his running style. And now that the head coach has laid down the gauntlet in a way, he better do it because, yes, Robinson runs the way they want all their running backs to run. And he's very comfortable doing it because he's played the position his whole life. So while I'm not necessarily thinking Gibson's doomed to the bench, I'm also pretty reactionary. And I try not to be in a lot of ways. But to what I saw yesterday, I think Robinson is on his way to being the guy who leads this team and carries just – they took him in the third round. They have Gibson. They could have just gone Gibson McKissick, but they not only added a running back, but one in the second day of the draft. That to me speaks volumes. And Robinson is, is showing off early what he can do. If we presume that Antonio Gibson was the commander's RB1 going into the preseason, is it accurate to say that his status as the commander's RB1 is on the line the rest of the preseason? Or is that being too dramatic? Again, like I, I try to be very calm and not dramatic about this because it's just one game and you know there's so many factors into it. But this is a situation where I'm prepared to be pretty dramatic and Gibson better be clean against Kansas City. He could use a 30-40 yarder, one of those big plays on the ground that he just hasn't had a ton of success with. He's been good four to 15 yards in Washington, but the stuff you saw at Memphis where he just flips the field and is gone, He's only really done that on the screen pass against the Bills last year. So um, it, it, I don't know if running back one status, there, if there is a true running back one in this backfield because of how much McKissick does. And then it felt like it was going to be a committee. But at, before Saturday, I would have said Gibson leads the team in carries after Saturday. And, and the tone that Ron had and what we saw from Robinson, I'm prepared to 
bestow the title upon Robinson. And uh, we'll see come September if it looks that way, or maybe Gibson can fight his way back in his next couple preseason games. So what happened at running back for the Commanders against the Panthers on Saturday afternoon may have been the most notable Commanders development, but of course, nothing matters more than quarterback. Uh, Like the rest of us, you have been talking about the Carson Wentz accuracy situation, and I know that to you, the Carson Wentz accuracy thing has in fact been a thing, uh, at least to some extent. Carson against the Panthers, 10 of 13 for 74 yards, no touchdowns and no interceptions. He took no sacks. He had no carries. Uh, Did Carson's performance on Saturday afternoon make you feel better or worse about where he's at? I definitely feel better because a lot of those throws he made, look, they weren't heroic in any way, but those are the throws he's been struggling with in camp. The drop back, there's Curtis on a quick out route. He's been throwing those at the guy's feet. He's been throwing them well towards the sideline where his guy can't even really lunge for it, get his fingertips on it. On that third down, he put it right where Samuel needed to run after the catch and get past the chains. The timing with Terry on the 16-yarder. Again, that's not a complex route, but finding Terry, knowing he's there and throwing it as he's breaking. You couldn't really see Terry on the screen, but I felt like just by how Terry looked when the ball came to him, it looked like Carson threw it with Terry sort of not back to him, but shoulder to him where it was, it was a little timing base as opposed to Terry just sitting there waiting for it. So I was encouraged. He didn't do anything spectacular, but I think that's a learning experience for him. Hopefully where he can say this team has a lot of guys I can get the ball to. I don't need to stand back there for seven seconds and try and run around and throw it uh, over two safeties to complete this miraculous hail Mary. It was nice to see him let the, the skill guys show off their skills. And uh, I think that was a nice step in the right direction for Carson. In terms of Carson Wentz's performances at commander's training camp practices, are the performances getting better? I mean, is he trending upward? So when the whole inaccuracy talk like really sparked, I felt like was the Saturday practice at FedEx field. Cause that's when all the fans could see it. And then we asked Ron about it and Terry about it and Carson about it. And then that, that Monday, it felt like that was the, the big topic on radio and podcasts. And ever since then, I do think it's gotten better. And the the snarky people on Twitter will be like, oh, what do you know? The, having a little <laughs> more time and a chance to play with his teammates. Like, okay, screw you. We, we're just reporting on what we're seeing in the first couple of weeks. We're ugly. But since then, I've noticed fewer just put your hands in your palms and wonder how an NFL quarterback makes those throws. The individual stuff looks better. The team stuff looks better. He hasn't really been intercepted all that much in camp. He had one day where he got picked off three times. Since then, it's only been once. And for what it's worth, he's never been intercepted in pads. So um, that that can be one thing. And yeah, so I think it, it's the, the first weeks were discouraging. Since then, I've been encouraged. So I'm probably right where I was at the start of camp with Carson, which is annoying that I let myself be swayed like that because I went into it saying, this is a guy who's going to be up and down. And we saw down and we've seen up since. And that's probably just what we have to get used to. Uh, We all play the press conference slash interview game. I definitely do. You know, what he say, how he say it, what he mean by what he said. I have been impressed by how Carson Wentz, since the commanders traded for him, has answered the many questions about the many negative items relating to him. He has continually taken the high road. He has continually demonstrated class. Do you put a lot of stock in Carson answering these questions well? Do these answers mean anything to you regarding the off-the-field issues uh, pertaining to Carson, you know, leadership, coachability, etc.? 
I'm there with you in terms of like being pleasantly surprised because you hear the worst from Philly and Indy and you're expecting him to be petulant and shirk blame and, and not be very you know, fuzzy or, or that excitable. And he's not that excitable up at the podium, but he's come across as fairly mature and reflective and accepting of responsibility and, and then giving credit to other players and talking about being patient with the offense. Like I think it's been good, good quarterback one behavior. Um, but I will say I'm not putting a ton of stock into it yet because they're zero and zero. If they start off one and one, if they lose against Jacksonville or if they're two and four and everybody in this town's got their pitchforks ready, that's when I'm going to want to see what happens with Carson because it sounds like, and what I've heard and what we've kind of seen in the past is when it's going good, he's a part of the crowd moving ahead. Everybody's awesome. But when it's not, then I feel like he lacks that or has lacked that ability to rally the troops. And we can only watch hard knocks and, and pick up the clues. But that Jacksonville game, that's when you need your quarterback to turn the ship around single-handedly. And the players didn't seem like they were responding to him on the sidelines and his play on the field did not elevate anyone to a better place. So um, I like the foundation he's laying, but we need to see it when the results start going in a bad direction. All right, much more with Commander's Insider Pete Haley of NBC Sports Washington in moments. I'm going to next ask Pete about Sam Howell. Uh, What do the Commanders truly think that they have in Sam Howell? But I know what we have in Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, that is excellent skin care. Uh, if you have questions or concerns about the health of your skin, know that Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland provide excellent skin care. Call 301-396-3401 and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. Dr. George Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Commanders fan. He's a loyal listener of this podcast and operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Uh, the institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. If you're dealing with acne, psoriasis, or eczema, if you're interested in procedures like Botox, laser hair removal, or chemical peels, if you are dealing with skin cancer or have dealt with skin cancer or want to get screened for skin cancer, contact Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Heck, Dr. Verghese and the Institute offer free skin cancer screenings in addition to offering advanced treatments for many skin cancers, including treatments that many other practices do not offer, like SRT, which is superficial radiation therapy. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. That's 301-396-3401. Make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you, but call 301-396-3401. You can also visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dot com. For excellent and comprehensive skin care, contact Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. More now with Commander's Insider Pete Haley of NBC Sports Washington. So, Sam Howell and what he did against the Panthers on Saturday afternoon. 9 of 16 for 145 yards, no touchdowns, and no interceptions. He took two sacks, and he had three carries for 19 yards and two touchdowns. No reasonable Commanders fan is going nuts with this. That said, 
Uh, that was a fun performance, and that was an impressive performance. Internally, what do you think that Ron Rivera and Scott Turner think that they have in Sam Howell? Like, if we got Ron and Scott to sit down with us and have a few cocktails, what do you think that Ron and Scott would say that they have in Sam Howell? Merely a long-shot developmental quarterback or a potential starting quarterback? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think my instinct, and we haven't talked so much about uh, you know, Carson or Sam because we've been spending so much time about Carson, but I would say that my lean is that they just think they have a long shot developmental guy. Like it seemed like Sam just sort of fell in their laps, right? Like when he was there in the fifth round, it was just like, sure, why the hell not? We're gonna pick this guy off the assembly line and see what we have. And I would think that's how they're approaching it still. And they're sitting back like, Oh, okay. Saturday was, that was cool. We saw some mobility. We saw the arm. That was a pleasant uh, first impression by the guy. I haven't gotten the sense that it's like, we need to keep him under wraps. This, we hit a home run. We, we feel it. Cause he's not exactly charismatic yet. Uh, he's, he's always going to have the questions about his height, but the positive traits, the arm, the, the mobility, the creativity. And I think he's, smart and he's picking up this offense he's de- he's someone who's gotten better from the beginning of camp there hasn't been any vacillating one way or the other it's just all progress so maybe they think it's a heineke type or or maybe a higher ceiling heineke because of his better arm um i would stop there though and not uh you know put words in their mouth where they're like yeah give us a couple years and this guy's a russell wilson type steal the commander's defense, I want to ask you a few things regarding the defensive line. First of all, the surprising firing of defensive line coach Sam Mills III this past Tuesday. Have you heard anything? Do we know anything more about why now? Like, we get that some players didn't love Sam. We get that Chase Young and Montez Sweat had disappointing 2021 seasons. But why now? Why did Ron Rivera fire his longtime assistant coach, two weeks into training camp. So I'm desperate to know, and I'm trying to figure it out, but they've been pretty tight-lipped. We haven't heard from Sam's side at all. And I think the two modes of thinking are there's some sort of incident, some blow-up that just made Ron want to cut it off. Or it was he wanted to give Sam training camp to see if he adjusted, gave him 10, 12 practices. He went off to Canton. Scanina was in there for a practice or two and Ron got to see the difference and envision a life without Mills. So I don't buy the difference in philosophy. They had worked together for a decade plus. You don't all of a sudden wake up and say, you know what? I disagree with that guy. It was either they got into a heated exchange or he just realized, look, this line responds better. I'd rather not just carry this into the season. It's better to do it late than never. So as of now, I'll nudge towards that direction that he just finally decided enough was enough as opposed to Sam coming into the office and then MFing each other. Um, but regardless, I do think it's going to help. Um, the D-line seems to be happy already. There's there's more smiling. There's more energy in that room. And, you know, it's annoying. You, you want your stars to play for whoever is coaching them and not be so uh, influenced by the mood or, or the, the trust that they feel. But it's a real thing. Work harder when you like your boss and you feel like your boss is in your corner. And I think with Scanina now, that's that's the they're synced up more. I remember shortly after the Jonathan Allen-Duran Payne scuffle uh, during the oh-so-wonderful loss at the Dallas Cowboys last December 26th, a piece that you wrote basically saying that Washington needed to shake things up 
with the defensive line because all of this defensive line talent wasn't translating into consistent overall defensive success. Well, since the end of last season, the team has released Matt Ioannidis, has allowed Tim Settle to leave via free agency, has, as far as we know, not even offered Deron Payne a contract extension despite him being said to be a free agent this coming offseason, and now has fired Sam Mills III. Uh, have we, in fact, seen a shakeup with the defensive line? I believe there's now enough of a shakeup, and maybe you could have tried to trade Payne and then drafted somebody higher instead of taking Mathis, but Mathis being in there should be counted too because he's not only a, a high pick, but he's a different style of player. Their D lineman and Ionitis and Settle were more of the get up field, be a pass rushing specialist, especially Ionitis. Fidarian's going to be the exact opposite. Stand there, hold the guard, hold the center, and let everybody fill in behind you. So with his addition and the change in play, new coach, and then a little more rotating of guys. And also Chase isn't going to be in there. You're going to have the two-hill James Smith-Williams combo. There is enough new blood in there for it to uh, have the specter of it being a better situation. On the flip side, there's also enough new blood in there where if it doesn't work again, then yeah, it's time to completely tear it down 100%. Like you you hope that Montez is really good. You know that John Allen's a, a building block and Deron Payne, maybe he's gone, but this year he should be good enough to help you. Um, but should it not go that that positive direction, then it's like, all right, we've tried the, the partial teardown. Now we've got to get everybody out and start fresh. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about the atmosphere at FedEx Field on Saturday afternoon for Commanders Panthers? Uh, how was the crowd? What was the vibe like? It was the crowd in preseason. Who knows? You can't really like blame people for not showing up. But the people who were there were energized. And it took a while because the game started slow for them. But like, when Rob Robinson got going, like his first carry was seven, eight yards. There was a lot of applause. And when that drive started building for that touchdown, like people were into it. As far as the 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 signage and all that, it's there. A team official told us for the most part, every WFT thing's been out. There's a few things here or there, but his explanation was like when they changed from Redskins to WFT, they knew they were gonna change the games. So they didn't want to just completely plaster the stadium. So now they have to take off their half committed uh, WFT stuff and then remember, all right, we need to have something here and on this sign and on this chair. And it's like a bit of a process. So um, in the end, I, I, I think it was a good, uh, good start for the rebrand. The fight song was weird. They didn't play it after the first touchdown, after just building it up, making it this big thing, but then they got it going. It was an odd sort of jazzy remix. If you're like just trying to sing the regular song, you'd have to adjust your pacing. I think they need to figure that out. Um, now they have this whole mascot deal, which I'm not that into, but it, I get it. You want to appeal to kids and have somebody you can send to other events. So all in all, I think the, the atmosphere was was pleasant. The good weather helped. And uh, the, the banana second half kind of sent everybody home with a little bit of excitement. Yeah, I tell you, FedEx Field did actually sound kind of loud on TV. And I didn't know if that was just how things sounded or if, in fact, the atmosphere was halfway decent. Uh, on Saturday afternoon. I do want to get your take on the Jason Wright, Scott Abraham situation from this past Friday. I know that we in the media can overvalue things that happen within and to the media, but uh, what Jason tweeted at Scott did get a lot of attention from fans. Uh, as a member of the media, as someone who is at Commander's Games and Practices, as someone who asks a lot of questions at Commander's press conferences, what did you make 
of what Jason tweeted? I was, I mean, appalled is a, a, a big step. Like I didn't like put my phone down and like gasp and like, <laughs> cry. It didn't, it didn't send me that way, but I was, I was miffed. Um, like, look, I get it that the questions Scott asked weren't creative. They'd been asked a bunch of times before and Scott played it up. He, he might've been dramatic and a little forceful and rude in some respect, just putting it basically right there in Carr's face. Like he could have asked it in a different way, but Jason, I think tremendously overreacted. We actually had like a sit down with him, 10 or so media members before the game. And it was mostly to talk about season ticket sales and how's the stadium search. But we asked him about that. JP Finley did. And he said he has no regrets about it. It's time for him to defend his players. And it, it was, it struck a chord in the former player inside of him. He felt like Carson was being unfairly attacked but I don't think he needed to go out of his way and call Scott pompous and childlike and like threaten his, his special access. You know, it was, it was over the line and I, I heard his explanation. I understood it, but I didn't agree with it. It didn't change my opinion. I thought it was ironic that he called Scott unprofessional or I felt it was pretty unprofessional in his own right. And look, whether you like the questions or not, I, it, it was, it was fair in the end. And it's, if, Scott can't ask that. How can we ask Montez Sweat about talking about the sack record and then coming up 29 sacks short? How can we talk to Ron about making a bad decision on a two-point conversion? Like, these are the football questions we have to ask, and the team side certainly isn't going to do it, so we need to. So in the end, I was understanding but still upset, and uh, I hope Jason maybe separates from it more and realizes he was a bit out of line. Have you or anyone else who covers the team other than Scott Abraham been talked to by the commanders about your questions at any point? Never had to deal with it. Jason said that um, he had talked to Scott before and then felt like, you know, if I'm going to talk to you privately all this time and you're not going to listen, then I've given you your shot to adjust. And now I'm going to call you out publicly and scorn you that way. I've never had anyone talk to me about uh, my tactics or, or the things I ask. And I don't think in the people I surveyed in the press box, it didn't seem like anybody else had that either. So um, look, Jason said, like, we'll, we'll give you every chance we can. We'll pull you aside. We'll have one-on-ones if we feel like you're being inappropriate, but no one else has really had that uh, first step. And hell, I hope, you know, if it does happen, I'll try to try to fix myself, but we also have the jobs to do. And Jason quote tweets one of my interviews one time and calls me pompous and unprofessional and sure as hell not going to like it, but I don't think that should scare us away from doing our job. I mean, this, this is a, a interesting organization that has a lot to be assailed for and criticized for, and they need to realize that just because this new regime has been here for a couple of years, that doesn't mean all of a sudden everything is forgotten and we can all move on in sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you certainly could argue that the second question from Scott Abraham in that video that made the rounds on Twitter was overly harsh and could have been phrased uh, with more of a bedside manner. But Jason Wright's tweet at Scott was overly harsh. Like, that's the irony. Scott was overly harsh, maybe. Jason was overly harsh in the tweet, definitely. Yeah, it was was not a commensurate response. It was, okay, this guy maybe made you a little mad and then you just knocked the door down and screamed in his face for 10 minutes. Like it, it's the, the wording of Jason's tweet was crazy. Almost just so many like adjectives that are very 
powerful and have a lot of meaning. And it was, didn't like it too much. Yeah, it's funny what Jason Wright tweeted at Scott Abraham read like something that Jason's boss would put out there. And um, it's hard to not make that connection. You know, not that Dan Snyder like made Jason Wright tweet that or that Dan Snyder even had any knowledge of Jason Wright tweeting that. But uh, I thought that Jason's tweet very much had a Dan like tone. That's that's well said by you. Yeah. And again, Jason wanting to protect his players. Cool. I don't know if that's his job to do it publicly. Maybe that's Ron. Maybe that's uh, someone else. You know, team presidents can do what they want. I guess it's better than Bruce, who never said anything except just blatant lies. So it's it's a it's a new style. But I don't think that was the right way for Jason to do it. He's he's better than that. I think. Pete Haley, Commanders Insider for NBC Sports Washington, does a great job covering the team. Pete, thanks a lot for your time and all the best to you. Yeah, thank you, Al, and uh, good luck with you as the show continues to grow. I appreciate that. Up next, I'm talking Nationals. Uh, They, over the weekend, lost two or three games to the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park, despite actually doing a pretty good job in facing the two players who the Nationals just traded uh, to the Padres, right fielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell. But also with the Nats is some exciting news. The top prospect who they got from the Padres in that trade is being called up. The future is now. I'll get to that and much more on the Nats after this. Well, if you're like me, you like coffee, and coffee is a part of your routine. I drink coffee before every workout, and I'm a big fan of Trade Coffee, which right now is offering something very special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. More on that offer in moments. But Trade Coffee tastes great, and Trade Coffee comes from a great place. Trade Coffee sends you freshly roasted beans from 60 of the country's best craft roasters, small businesses that pay farmers fair prices to sustainably source the greatest beans from around the world. So buying Trade Coffee gets you delicious coffee and supports small businesses and farmers. And here's maybe the best part. Trade Coffee tailors its coffee to you. Uh, You complete a very brief coffee quiz, and you get your own personalized variety of coffees delivered fresh to you as often as you like. No gimmicks. Uh, Trade Coffee delivers a bag of freshly roasted coffee as whole beans or ground for however you brew your coffee at home. And Trade Coffee guarantees that you'll love your first order, or Trade Coffee will replace your order for free. Trade Coffee is a great model. There's no one perfect coffee but there is a perfect coffee for you. And so here's a special offer for listeners of this podcast. Trade Coffee is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off first orders plus free shipping. Just go to drinktrade.com slash algaldi. Drinktrade.com slash algaldi. Take the quiz and let Trade Coffee find you the coffee that you'll love. Again, off. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Visit drinktrade.com slash algaldi for $30 off. That's drinktrade.com slash algaldi for $30 off. One more time, visit drinktrade.com slash algaldi for $30 off. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data 
and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So we, over the weekend, had the returns of Juan Soto and Josh Bell to Nationals Park. Uh, The returns happened rather soon after the departures. Uh, It was on August 2nd, uh, what was MLB trade deadline day, that the Nats traded right fielder Juan Soto and first baseman Josh Bell to the San Diego Padres for six players. We, over the weekend, had the first of two series between the Nats and Padres in a span of 10 days. Uh, In fact, The Nats and Padres are in the midst of playing each other seven times in 10 days. Uh, This just concluded three-game series at Nationals Park and then a four-game series at San Diego uh, this Thursday through Sunday. Now, the Padres, since trading for Soto and Bell, haven't exactly been surging. Uh, But, of course, the Nats, since trading Soto and Bell, haven't exactly been surging either. And the Nats over the weekend did lose uh, the series, two games to one, in one of the weaker offensive performances by the Nats in a series this season. Uh, Friday night, a 10-5 Nats loss. Saturday night, a 4-3 Nats win. And this was an exciting game and a game with some controversy. Uh, Victor Robles in the Nats one run seventh, a tie-breaking two-out first pitch opposite field RBI single through the right side of the infield for a 4-3 Nats lead. Scoring on the play was Cesar Hernandez, who initially was ruled out on a very good throw by, yes, Juan Soto. But Nats manager Davey Martinez challenged the play, and Hernandez ended up being ruled safe due to the Padres catcher Austin Nola having violated the home plate collision rule. Uh, The Padres manager, former Orioles catcher Bob Melvin, uh, he ended up being ejected. Uh, But then on Sunday afternoon, a 6-0 Nats loss. Uh, The Nats in the 2022 regular season now are a major league worst 38-78 with a major league worst run differential of minus 210. By the way, your times of games in the series, you ready for this? Game one, four hours, three minutes. (laughs) I couldn't believe that. Uh, Game two, three hours, 31 minutes. Game three, three hours, 18 minutes. Uh, It is ridiculous how long Major League Baseball games are. MLB needs like a total overhaul in terms of pace of play 
and length of games. We desperately need pitch clocks in MLB, and we desperately need to make shortening games a real focus. Like, this needs to become part of the culture of MLB. Four hours, three minutes on Friday night for a nine-inning baseball game was absurd. Anyway, what was funny about this series is that as it was just beginning, we got massive news regarding the Padres. Uh, Just as game one of the series was getting going on Friday night, we got the big news that MLB had suspended Padres shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr. 80 games without pay. Uh, This for testing positive for a performance-enhancing substance in violation of Major League Baseball's Joint Drug Prevention and Treatment Program. Uh, The suspension was effective immediately, meaning that Tatis will miss the remainder of the 2022 regular season and the first 33 games of the 2023 regular season, although any games that the Padres play in the 2022 postseason would count uh, toward the Tatis suspension. My favorite part of all of this is that Tatis in a statement said, wait for it, that he accidentally treated ringworm with a medication that contained the PED for which he tested positive. Golly gee, I hate when that happens. You're treating your ringworm and then all of a sudden you get popped for PEDs. Uh, But from a Padres perspective, the weekend was as much about the Tatis news as anything. But of course, from a Nats perspective, so much of the weekend was about Juan Soto. And Soto was all class in his return to Nationals Park. Uh, He prior to game one of the series signed autographs for fans at Nationals Park, uh, was shown on the video board at Nationals Park, giving a very nice message to Nats fans. He in a pregame session with reporters on Friday afternoon said of the day on which he was traded by the Nats to the Padres, quote, I cried the whole morning, end quote. Uh, Soto was the Padres starting right fielder and number two batter in all three games in the series. Uh, Yes, he for the Padres is batting in the number two spot, which he was not a big fan of while with the Nats this season. Uh, Soto in the series, 4 for 12 with a double, three singles, and four walks. Uh, Josh Bell, he was the Padres' number four batter in all three games in the series. He was the starting first baseman in games one and three and the starting DH in game two. And Bell in this series was not good. 0 for 13 with three walks. Uh, Bell actually is not doing well uh, with the Padres so far. It definitely was odd seeing especially Soto in a Padres uniform. I mean, the Nats just traded the guy and now had to face the guy. And then in just a few days, we'll have to face the guy again. Uh, And there remains this mystery of why exactly the Nats felt the need to trade Soto this season. I still find that To be very curious, uh, I get the arguments for trading Juan Soto. I certainly don't disagree with the idea that he's only one player. He can only mean so much. And so getting a bunch of good players for him, even with him being a great player, makes sense, especially if he's never going to sign a long-term contract extension with the Nats. But given the Nats' ownership uncertainty, I always felt that it was worth the wait to let the sale of the team be completed, let the new ownership take over, and then see what that new ownership could do in trying to sign Soto to a long-term contract extension. The learners never made Soto a true godfather offer, a truly overwhelming offer in contract extension talks. Perhaps the Nats' next owner would have done that. Uh, Well, with all of that in mind, how about this? MLB insider Chelsea James of the Washington Post on Friday morning came out with an article on where the sale 
of the Nat stands. And within the article was the following on the input of prospective Nats owners on the team trading Juan Soto. Quote, three people with direct knowledge of the Soto deliberations said the learners did not seek input about Soto from any of the potential bidders, end quote. So how about that? Uh, So much for this theory that the reason that the learners were antsy to trade Soto this season was that prospective buyers of the Nats wanted for Soto to be traded. At least according to the Post, the learners did not seek input about Soto from any of the potential bidders. It still feels to me like there is stuff that we do not know about why truly the Nats got so antsy to trade Soto this season as opposed to waiting for the offseason during which the expectation is that the sale of the Nats will be completed. And there are plenty of people who think that the Nats, had they traded Soto this coming offseason, would have gotten close to what the team ended up getting in trading Soto this season. Like the idea that you trade him this coming offseason, you're going to get so much less than what you ended up getting for him this season. I'm not so sure about that. Probably you would have gotten less, but maybe slash probably not substantially less. Uh, As for the Nats losing two or three games to the Padres at Nationals Park over the weekend, well, like I said, not a good offensive series for the Nats, but help is coming. Uh, So shortstop Luis Garcia did not play in each of the final two games of the series due to groin tightness. Uh, He may well be headed to the 10-day injured list, but the Nats are calling up one of their prized acquisitions in the Juan Soto-Josh Bell trade, uh, shortstop C.J. Abrams. Uh, He had been playing for AAA Rochester, but the Nats are calling him up. Uh, Baseball America this past Monday, August 8th, put out an updated list of the top 100 prospects in baseball. The Nats had five players among the top 55. The Nats' highest-ranked prospect was C.J. Abrams. Uh, He was number 11. The Padres took Abrams with the number six pick in the 2019 MLB draft out of a high school in Georgia. Uh, So exciting news here with C.J. Abrams. We also had this over the weekend for the Nats, an outstanding outing for the team's top pitching prospect, Cade Cavalli. Uh, Cavalli on Saturday night in the AAA Rochester Red Wings 5-1 win over the Norfolk Tides uh, was great. One run in seven innings, 11 strikeouts versus two walks and three hits. Uh, He threw 96 pitches, 64 strikes, versus a mere 32 balls. Uh, Cade Cavalli now, over his last six starts, 31 and two-thirds innings, an ERA of 142 and 35 strikeouts versus nine walks. Uh, He, over his first seven starts for Rochester this season, was not good. ERA is 762, but he has been a lot better lately. And you would think, slash hope, uh, that Cavalli is about to be called up to the majors, especially with the likes of Anibal Sanchez uh, making starts for the Nats. We'll see. I mean, the Nats have taken their time with Cade Cavalli. That's not a bad thing, by the way, although that has made me wonder about where he's at in his development. But Cavalli is a very enticing pitching prospect, uh, listed as being 6'4 and 240 pounds. MLB Pipeline ranks Cavalli as the number 43 prospect in baseball. The Nats took Cavalli with the number 22 pick in the 2020 MLB draft out of the University of Oklahoma this season is his age 23 season. Uh, Like I said earlier, bad offense for the Nats against the Padres over the weekend, especially in Sunday afternoon's 6 nothing loss. Uh, the Nats for this game had some lineup. Uh, no Luis Garcia. Uh, no Kbert Ruiz as the Nats starting catcher as he had caught 
the first two games in the series. Uh, no Nelson Cruz as the starting DH. He got an off day. Uh, not that he has been good this season. The Nats lineup on Sunday afternoon was a depleted mess. I mean, the Nats cleanup batter on Sunday afternoon was Lane Thomas, uh, your starting right fielder. Uh, he went 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Uh, the Nats leadoff batter on Sunday afternoon was Alex Call. Who? What? Yes, Alex Call. Know your Nats, <laughs> Alex Call. Uh, the Nats on Sunday morning recalled outfielder Alex Call uh, from AAA Rochester and optioned outfielder Josh Palacios to Rochester. Now, the Palacios thing is interesting to me. The Nats on MLB trade deadline day on August 2nd recalled Palacios from AAA Rochester, but ended up not playing him all that much, although he had the 10-5 loss to the Padres at Nationals Park on Friday night in a three-run Nats ninth, had a big hit, a pinch double uh, to right field on a 1-2 pitch. Uh, this season is Palacios's age 26 season. But yeah, Alex Call. Uh, this season is Call's age 27 season. He was taken by the Chicago White Sox in the third round of the 2016 MLB draft at a Ball State University. Uh, the Nats claimed Alex Call off waivers from the Cleveland Guardians on August 7th. And such was the state of the Nats lineup on Sunday afternoon that Alex Call was the Nats starting left fielder and number one batter. He went 0 for 4 with two strikeouts. Uh, the offensive bright spot for the Nats over the weekend was Joey Manessis, who now over 10 career Major League games has five home runs and an OPS of 1,276. What a run Joey Manessis is on. The Nats on August 2nd, uh, what it was, MLB trade deadline day, selected the contract of Joey Manessis from AAA Rochester. Uh, he had never played in a Major League regular season game. This is his age 30 season. Uh, this was his 10th minor league season. And he has been awesome for the Nats. Uh, Manessis in the 10-5 loss to the Padres on Friday night was the Nats starting right fielder and number five batter. He went two for four with two singles and a walk. He did leave five men on base, but he also made a nice defensive play. Uh, Manessis in the top of the six made a nice backhanded and sliding forward catch of a Jake Cronenworth liner for the second out. Uh, Manessis in the Nats one run six had a leadoff opposite field single to right center field despite having been down to the count at 1.02. Manessis in the bottom of the seventh had a two-out first pitch single to left field. Manessis in an Nats three-run ninth drew a one-out six-pitch walk despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Manessis in the 4-3 win over the Padres on Saturday night was the Nats starting right fielder and number five batter. He went two for four with a solo homer and a single. Manessis in the bottom of the fourth, a two-out opposite field single to right field on an 0-2 pitch. Manessis in the Nats three-run sixth, a two-out solo homer to left field on a 1-2 pitch to tie the game at three. Uh, the homer went a projected 415 feet for StatCast and gave him five home runs in nine career Major League regular season games. And then Manessis in the 6 nothing loss to the Padres on Sunday afternoon was an ad starting first baseman and number two batter. He went two for four with two singles. Uh, Manessis in the bottom of the first had a one-out full count single to center field despite having been down to the count at 1.02. Manessis in the bottom of the six had a two-out opposite field single down the right field line. Uh, just going through all that Manessis did over the weekend, listen to how many two-strike hits the guy had. I mean, he is really giving us 
some beautiful plate appearances here in his brief time as a major leaguer, and he just has been tremendous. I mean, you really can't say enough about the offensive success of Joey Manessis so far. But also for the Nats on Sunday afternoon uh, was some really bad defense. Uh, the Nats are not a good defensive team. The Nats entered Sunday dead last in the majors in team defensive runs saved in the 2022 regular season at minus 54. And understand, defensive runs saved aren't just about errors. Defensive runs saved are much more about range and making plays on balls that could go for hits, but you convert into outs, you know, turning batted balls into outs. That's what good defensive teams do, and that's not what the 2022 Nats do, unfortunately. Uh, Victor Robles on Sunday afternoon. He was an Nats starting center fielder and number nine batter. He went one for three with a single and two strikeouts, and he had a very mixed day in the field. Uh, Robles in the top of the fifth did make a great diving catch in the right center field gap to rob Josh Bell of a hit for the third out. But Robles in the Padres' one-run sixth was victimized by the Sun Monster as uh, Robles lost a high fly ball in the sun on what ended up being a two-out double by Trent Grisham. Uh, How about what happened in the Padres' two-run ninth? Uh, Michael Franco on Sunday afternoon. He was an ad starting third baseman at number six batter. One for four with a single, but he committed a costly throwing error. Franco in the Padres' two-run ninth, a crucial one-out throwing error as he, with the bases loaded and the Nats trailing 4-0, did make a nice stab of a hot shot grounder of the bat of the former Oriole, Manny Machado. But then while falling down toward third base, made a horrendous throw toward second base and into the outfield. Uh, two runs scored on the play for a 6 nothing Padres lead. Uh, the aforementioned Luis Garcia, he on Friday night committed another costly error. Uh, Luis Garcia on Friday night was the Nats starting shortstop and number one batter. He went two for three with two singles and a walk, uh, left the game with growing tightness. But Garcia on Friday night in the Padres' seven-run fifth committed a one-out fielding error. Uh, he with runners at the corners on a grounder off the bat of Jake Cronenworth and an attempted turning a 6-3 double play, missed stepping on second base and then saw his throw to first base be too late. Uh, a run scored on the play. Uh, Garcia really has struggled defensively at shortstop and he's going to be moving back to second base with uh, C.J. Abrams being called up to the majors. Uh, As for the Nats pitching in the series, uh, well, the Nats in the series threw Corey Abbott, Anibal Sanchez, and Paolo Espino as the team's starting pitchers against the mighty Padres. And uh, the results were, well, about what you would have expected. Uh, Corey Abbott in the 10-5 loss to the Padres on Friday night, three runs in four innings. Uh, He gave up four hits, three doubles, and a single. He issued three walks. He did record five strikeouts, but he over his four innings threw 90 pitches, 53 strikes versus 37 balls. Uh, Anibal Sanchez in the 4-3 win over the Padres on Saturday night, three runs in five innings. He gave up six hits, two home runs, a double, and three singles. He issued three walks and a wild pitch. He recorded four strikeouts. He over his five innings threw a jaw-dropping 98 pitches, 57 strikes, 
versus 41 balls. Sanchez in the top of the third allowed a run on a leadoff first pitch homer by Manny Machado to right field for a 1-0 Padres lead. The homer winner projected 401 feet per stat cast. Sanchez in the top of the fourth allowed two runs, including giving up a one-out solo homer to Trent Grisham to the second deck in right field for a 2-0 Padres lead. Uh, that homer went a projected 410 feet per stat cast. Anibal Sanchez has been giving up home runs like crazy. He in the 2022 regular season now was allowed at 25 runs, 24 earned in 30 innings over six major league starts. His ERA is 720. And then Paolo Espino in the 6-0 loss to the Padres on Sunday afternoon. Four runs in five and two-thirds innings. He gave up seven hits, two doubles, and five singles. Issued two walks. Recorded three strikeouts. He, over his five and two-thirds innings, threw an astounding 109 pitches. Although, he did throw a lot of strikes. uh, 70 strikes versus 39 balls. Uh, As for the Nats' bullpen, uh, so the Nats on Friday afternoon announced several roster moves. The Nats announced that they had returned from rehabilitation assignment and reinstated reliever Tyler Clippard from the 15-day injured list, which he had been on since July 22nd, retroactive to July 19th with a groin strain. Uh, The Nats announced that they had activated reliever Jake McGee, who the Nats had claimed off waivers from the Milwaukee Brewers last Tuesday. The Nats announced that they had optioned reliever Andres Machado to AAA Rochester this off the Nats this past Wednesday afternoon, having optioned reliever Mason Thompson to Rochester. Uh, Tyler Clippard over the weekend was quite bad over two appearances. Uh, You know, everyone loves Tyler Clippard, but man, he did not look good in his first two appearances here off the 15-day IL. Uh, Friday night, the 10-5 loss to the Padres. Clippard in the top of the eighth allowed two runs. Uh, He gave up a homer, two doubles, a walk, and a hit by pitch. And then on Sunday afternoon, the 6-0 loss to the Padres. Clippard in the top of the ninth allowed two runs on two singles, two walks, a hit by pitch, and that throwing error by Michael Franco. Now, on the flip side, so far so good for Jake McGee as a Nat. Uh, Friday night, McGee tossed a perfect top of the seventh in his Nats debut. Sunday afternoon, McGee tossed a perfect top of the eighth with two strikeouts. Uh, Also on Sunday afternoon was Victor Arano tossing one and a third scoreless innings as he bounced back from an atrocious outing on Friday night. Victor Arano on Friday night had one of the single worst outings that any Nats reliever has had this season. He was a complete mess in what ended up being a seven-run Padres fifth. He, in the inning, allowed five runs, one earned, and recorded just two outs. Uh, Four of the runs were unearned thanks to that uh, previously discussed error by Luis Garcia, but Arano, in the inning, on the very first pitch that he threw, gave up a first pitch two-run double to Manny Machado off the center field wall for a 3-0 Padres lead, and Arano issued a one-out eight-pitch walk of Brandon Drury, and Arano gave up a two-out, three-run homer to Trent Grisham to right field for a 7-0 Padres lead. And the homer was a moonshot. The homer went a projected 442 feet per stat cast. And Arano <laughs> then gave up three consecutive two-out singles, including a two-out full-count opposite field RBI single by Juan Soto to left field for an 8 nothing. Padres lead. Yeah, Victor Arano on Friday night was a special kind of bad 
out of the bullpen. Uh, also with the Nats bullpen over the weekend, a strangely effective performance in the 4-3 win over the Padres on Saturday night. Four Nats relievers combined for four scoreless innings with four strikeouts, but also five walks. Uh, the relievers were walking guys like crazy, and yet the relievers somehow ended up throwing four shutout innings. How about what happened with Kyle Finnegan on Saturday night? Scoreless top of the seventh, despite giving up a leadoff full count double to Manny Machado off the left field wall, despite him having been down to the count at 1.02, despite issuing a five-pitch walk of Josh Bell, and despite issuing a one-out intentional walk of Jake Cronenworth, to load the bases. Uh, we're used to Kyle Finnegan coming into games with multiple runners on base and somehow escaping those jams. On Saturday night, Kyle Finnegan created his own jam, but ended up escaping uh, that jam. Uh, next up for the Nats, a three-game series against the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park. Game one, Monday night at 7.05. Josiah Gray will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game two, Tuesday night at 7.05. Patrick Corbin will be the Nats starting pitcher. And game three, Wednesday afternoon at 105, Corey Abbott will be the Nats starting pitcher. Well, the Orioles weekend got off to such a nice start, but then unfortunately came the rest of their weekend. A big three-game series at the Tampa Bay Rays. Friday night, a glorious 10-3 win but then Saturday, an 8-2 loss, and then Sunday afternoon, a 4-1 loss in which the O's were nearly perfect gamed. Uh, the Orioles' lone base runner on Sunday afternoon was shortstop Jorge Mateo, who led off a one-run Orioles ninth with a double down the left field line to break up the perfect game bid by Ray starter Drew Rasmussen. Uh, first baseman Ryan Mountcastle on Sunday afternoon did not play for the O's off on Saturday, having been hit by a pitch on his left hand slash wrist. But still, that does not explain uh, the O's nearly getting perfect gamed on Sunday afternoon. Uh, not good. O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Sunday afternoon on Drew Rasmussen. Uh, give, him, give him a lot of credit. He thrown 96. With, I thought the cutter, slider, whatever that is, is was uh, just from the side. Had a ton of depth to it. We just had a tough time squaring him up. We uh, a lot of early count, weak outs, which helped him out. And, um, but he threw a heck of a game. Yes, he did. Uh, the O's in the 2022 regular season now are 59 and 55 and are one and a half games behind the Rays for the American League's third wildcard spot. The Orioles' offense on Friday night was really good, but the Orioles' offense over the final two games of the series did very little. But a lot of impressive offensive performances by the O's in that 10-3 win at the Rays on Friday night. Jorge Mateo on Friday night as the Orioles' starting shortstop and number 9 batter. 5 for 5. Yeah, 5 for 5. Had an RBI double, another double, an RBI single and two other singles, and he had a stolen base. Uh, Cedric Mullins on Friday night as the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter, three for six with a solo homer, an RBI single, and another single. He did go 0 for 1 on stolen bases, but Mullins in an Orioles one-run eighth, a one-out solo homer to right field for a 9-3 Orioles lead. The homer went a projected 411 feet per stat cast. Anthony Santander on Friday night as the Orioles starting DH and number four batter, three for five with a double 
double and two singles. Uh, two Orioles were especially good over the first two games of the series. Adley Rutschman and Rugnet Odor. Uh, Rutschman on Friday night as the Orioles starting catcher and number two batter. One for three with a solo homer a walk and an RBI sack fly. A uh, Rutschman in an Orioles one run first, a one out solo homer on a bomb to right field for a one nothing Orioles lead. The homer went a projected 400 39 feet per stat cast. And then Rutschman on Saturday as the Orioles starting catcher and number four batter. One for five with a double and two strikeouts. And how about this? He became the first major league catcher since at least 1900 to record 23 doubles over his first 66 career regular season games. I've talked about Adley Rutschman being like Mr. Double, but geez, that is something. First major league catcher since at least 1900. It's 2022, 1900 to have 23 doubles over his first 66 career regular season games. And then Rugi. Uh, Rugnet Odor, he on Friday night as the Orioles starting second baseman and number seven batter, four for five with two RBI singles and two other singles. And Odor on Saturday as the Orioles starting second baseman and number eight batter, two for three with an RBI single, another single, a walk and a stolen base. Let's get into the Orioles starting pitching in the series because their starting pitching was really interesting. Uh, so first of all, the former national, Austin Voth, He, in that 10-3 win at the Rays on Friday night, had another good outing. In fact, Voth began the outing with five no-hit innings. Yes, Austin Voth on Friday night flirted with a no-no. He ultimately allowed two runs in five and a third innings. He had five strikeouts versus one walk. Uh, He gave up just three hits, a homer, and two singles. And he threw a lot of strikes, 80 pitches, 53 strikes, versus 27 balls. Uh, Austin Voth now with the O's, 13 games, including nine starts, 42 innings, an ERA of 321. Uh, The O's on June 7th claim Voth off waivers from the Nats. Uh, Voth for the Nats in the 2022 regular season had an ERA of 1013 in 18 and two-thirds innings over 19 games. Voth for the Nats over four-plus major league regular seasons, 2018 to 2022, had an ERA of 570 over 181 and two-thirds innings. Everyone in the Nats front office should be studying what is happening here for Austin Voth with the O's. Uh, Then on Saturday, we had this D.L. Hall situation. So the O's on Saturday morning recalled lefty starter D.L. Hall from AAA Norfolk. And this was a big deal. Uh, Hall is the number 61 prospect in baseball for MLB Pipeline. Uh, The O's took D.L. Hall out of a high school in Georgia with the number 21 pick in the 2017 MLB draft. Uh, Hall had made 18 starts for Norfolk in its 2022 season. His ERA was 476. That's obviously not that impressive. But he also had 114 strikeouts in just 70 innings. Uh, That works out to a strikeouts per nine innings of 14.66. So D.L. Hall for Norfolk had been a strikeout machine this season. He was the Orioles starting pitcher in game two of the series at the Rays, the 8-2 loss at the Rays on Saturday. And things did not go well. Uh, Hall in his major league regular season debut allowed five runs in three and two-thirds innings. He gave up five hits, two doubles, and three singles. He issued three walks, did record six strikeouts, but he over his three and two-thirds innings threw 76 pitches, 47 strikes, 
versus 29 Bulls. And then came a surprise. Uh, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame session with reporters, said that the O's would be optioning Hall back to Triple A Norfolk. Uh, this in order to convert him into being a reliever so that he can help the O's at the major league level in their push for one of the three American League wildcard spots. Uh, The O's have been closely monitoring D.L. Hall's workload, and so using him as a starting pitcher at the major league level isn't feasible. But the O's are going to be using Hall at the major league level just as a reliever. Uh, This is creative. This is aggressive. And I like this. I think this is shrewd. You know, this says nothing about D.L. Hall moving forward. I mean, the plan is still very much for him to be a starting pitcher. But, you know, he is coming off an injury-plagued 2021 season. Hall in the 2021 season pitched for A Bowie, but totaled just 31 and two-thirds innings due to a stress reaction in his left elbow. So here you have the O saying, hmm, well, what can we do here with D.L. Hall? We don't want to risk his health, but we want to get usage out of him as we make a postseason push. Ah, We'll use him as a reliever at the major league level. Uh, We certainly have seen teams do this with other prized pitching prospects in the past. Uh, The Rays did this with David Price years ago. But here was Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Saturday evening on DL Hall. So we are um, we're an option deal, and we are uh, excited that he got his feet wet in the big leagues, made his first start. We're gonna we're gonna. uh, He's going to go to Norfolk, and we're going to convert him to a uh, reliever here and to help us out the last uh, the last part of the season. So he's going to uh, he's going to go back down and help us out out of the bullpen here to finish off the year. How do you think this experience today benefited him? We're just talking to him. I think it was just a little you know a little quick for him, um, but I thought he showed flashes of what what he's going to be in which in that second inning where he had electric stuff and. Um, it's you know it's a lot for a young pitcher to to you know make their debut. I, he, I just think he was a little bit overamped there early. A um, couple of leadoff walks. Um, the fastball was was up, and and he's had a tough time making an adjustment. But uh, you know I think he's he's going to be a really good pitcher, and so we're we're excited for him going forward. Was it important for him to get that first outing in the major leagues before he becomes a reliever? I mean, was, was that kind of in the calculus that you wanted to get? At least well, we did it for a l- numerous reasons, but one was to get his, to get him here and to get acclimated to what it's like here. I think that's that's great. Now he goes down, understands what he needs to work on, um, change a role a little bit here to to end the season, and um, you know I think that you know I didn't, it wasn't the results that he wanted, but. But, uh, you know, anytime you get that first experience out of the way, I think it's a positive. Is this a, sort of his injury history in mind? Is this an inning sort of way to monitor him a little bit? There's innings and be able to help us out out of the pen in you know, the, last, uh, the last month or so. Yes, the last month or so. Uh, we'll see if there is an or so in terms of the postseason for the O's. Uh, and then we had a strange outing for Jordan Lyles in the 4-1 loss at the Rays on Sunday afternoon. So Lyles allowed four runs in four and a third innings, but he recorded nine strikeouts. So the run prevention was really bad, four runs in four and a third innings, but the strikeout rate was really good, nine strikeouts in four and a third innings. He gave up five hits, a homer, two doubles, and three singles. He issued two walks, and he over his four and a third innings threw 87 pitches, 54 strikes, versus 33 balls. Uh, The homer that Lyles gave up was a two-out, three-run homer by Randy Arozarena in the bottom of the third. Arozarena killed the O's 
in this series. Four for 11 with two homers, a double, a single, and two walks. He, over the three games, had six RBI. Next up for the O's is yet another big three-game series in the American League wildcard race, a three-game series at the American League wildcard-leading Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Game one, Monday night at 7.07, Kyle Bradish will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. Game two, Tuesday night at 7.07, Dean Kramer will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And game three, Wednesday afternoon at 3.07, Austin Voth will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 377. We'll have plenty on the commanders as their 2022 training camp continues. Also on the show, I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. And that's on Monday night at 7.05. We'll begin game one of a three-game series against the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park as we'll hopefully have the Major League Nats debut of shortstop C.J. Abrams. The O's on Monday night at 7.07. We'll begin game one of a three-game series at the American League wildcard-leading Toronto Blue Jays. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. So I like where your head's at, um, and I like that you continue to pump me up about Tanner Taylor. You're probably the only one on this entire planet who does in a positive manner. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.